Thank you, Ben. That was really great. I want to introduce our storyteller for the day, Kendra Gill. I really have a, uh, just a special appreciation for her because of the way God used her to speak into my life earlier on. And I really believe, even as I look back now, that it was a significant uh, pivot moment uh, for me. Uh, the way she talked to me about how I really needed to lead with love more than with ideas or criticism or just even change. That really impacted me. That was a seed that God watered and caused to grow in my heart. And I just feel so different uh, about uh, being a pastor here. So I will always credit and thank Kendra for that. Uh, that and that's, a, that's sort of a prevailing theme in her life. She's incredibly intuitive. She has this truth meter. Uh, that sort of goes off and th something is off. And her adherence to truth really leads her to be free. Because if sh she believes it's true, then she can act free within that truth. But she doesn't use that freedom to do other things, but she uses it to be a loving person. So she is a really good, real live example for me of a truth in love person. So appreciate her, and I'm excited to hear from her. Kendra, come on up. Tell us a story. Good morning, church. My name's Kendra Gill. I've been attending this church since 2010, and I'm happy to be up here today giving you a little snapshot into a time in my life, a little bit of a long time when I wrestled relentlessly with myself and with God as I chose a career. Although my parents remember me as a wee child saying I wanted to become a doctor, I first recall seriously contemplating this when I was in high school. I enjoyed math and science. I started to travel to Latin America and started to learn Spanish. And I had built this utopia in my mind of um, traveling to foreign lands, being a missionary doctor, and working with people with different customs and languages. I thought it sounded exotic and challenging. And it was a nice uh, pat answer when those adults in your life when you're in high school go, so what do you want to be when you grow up? So I had that down. And I completed high school without major foibles and what I thought was a firm career path. However, at the University of Washington, college life balance wasn't so easy. Uh, Pre-med weed-out classes smushed hundreds of students into massive auditoriums where no one knew the professors and no one cared if you skipped class, which I dare say I tried a few times. Early morning classes were not wise for a night owl like myself and poor study habits like cramming for tests or completing homework at the last minute or pulling all-nighters to write an essay uh, didn't really cut it, and I bombed my first year of college. Um, this is when the self-doubt started. I really started to question God's calling, and I didn't trust my ability to be disciplined enough or smart enough or really anything enough to do the long route that was ahead for medical school. I prayed that God would change my heart, of course, if it was his will, um, but like a young kid uh, picking flowers in love, saying, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. I did this all through college with medicine. Medicine, no medicine, medicine, no medicine. So every class I would take that wasn't medical related, I would go, hmm, archaeology, maybe I'll do that, or psychology, I'd want to be a psychologist. 
But there wasn't really a field that pulled me away from medicine. So I plodded on, but I still longed for this vision just to be hit over the head by God so I would stop questioning. But God in his wisdom let me go through it one torturous step of faith at a time with kind of whispers and nudges in one direction. One important provision came in my second or third year of undergrad on an airplane. I pulled out a book on celebrating the Jewish feasts, and I happened to sit next to a Jewish doctor named Gary Franklin, who headed up epidemiology research at UW. We had an interesting conversation. He gave me his card, and for about six months, I called him periodically to see if he had any openings, and I finally got my first research job. And I got published, which was a very important step in medical school admissions process. You had to prove your scientific inquiry and method skills. Another provision came in also human form, and it was a young, handsome man named Eric Gill. We met in the dungeons of the physics uh, building where the TAs and lost students got together to fumble through problems of rocks being catapulted off of a moving tire and swinging pendulums, and it was taught by a very unrelatable black hole expert. It was the blind leading the blind. Eric is the most disciplined and generous person I know, and he helped me tackle this dreadful class. I actually had a boyfriend when we first met, which complicated our friendship. And we had about a year of drama where we eventually started dating and obviously got married, to many of you you know anyway. Um, but prior to marriage, he also helped me tackle that MCAT. It's the medical school entrance exam, and I'm pretty sure I would have given up on that test without him. So at this point, I had some research, a mixed bag of grades and decent MCAT scores. But UW rejected me. Uh, right out of undergrad, you could inquire about feedbacks as to why, and I was told, don't throw your eggs all in one basket. Uh, apply to more schools so it shows a true commitment as well as increasing your odds, and that I needed clinically relevant work. So from Seattle to Albuquerque and even a stint in Nicaragua, I got medically related experience. I work primarily in social work and psychiatry, which had always been alternative fields I had contemplated. But after a butcher knife attempt to kill me, navigating the hurdles of social services and working with some really horrendous abuse cases, um, my draw towards the medical side of my work and uh, was becoming very evident and I could see I was not cut from the psychologist cloth. After a second rejection to medical school for myself, Eric entered his first year of medical school in New York, where I started grad school to counter those freshman courses I tanked at UW. I was finally firm in my path. I got straight A's. I received an interview for medical school. And this was about seven years after my journey in college had begun. So I thought I was arriving at the next chapter. And then I found out I was pregnant. So I kept thinking, was this a sign to stop? All of the old self-doubts resurfaced with some new ones to add on. Uh, could I be a good mom and a good doctor? How would two medical students have a baby and properly care for it and each other and not fail school? 
I didn't have these answers, but I first had to get through the medical school interview. Um, I knew it was a number of months out when I would be obviously showing, and I didn't want the baby to make a decision or be a decision-making factor for the committee. So I decided to hide it. So I turned my skirt sideways and had all these rubber bands to hold my skirt on. And then since I was kind of relatively big in this end, I got some fake boobs and put them in my chest. So I just looked like I was big all around. And uh, it worked. I actually pulled off a non-pregnant interview. And miracle of miracles, I was accepted into medical school alongside my husband. So, <laughs> we had blind faith going into this season. We knew of no medical school couples with kids who were both students, but we decided to go for it. Getting through medical school and residency together while raising children was by far the hardest thing I've ever done. Divine intervention is the only way I can explain Eric's out of the blue Air Force scholarship, which was our financial backbone. How we had energy when we didn't sleep, um, how I was able to return to medical school three days after giving birth. How we remembered facts when our brains were saturated. The crazy and numerous childcare opportunities that appeared just in the nick of time when we had nothing. How we maintained a healthy relationship when many people around us divorced in the training process. How he healed our wounds when we lost a baby at 18 weeks of pregnancy. When I was on a really hard rotation and run ragged. And from, from time to time, I've cropped those old doubts. And I go, did, did I choose the right path? And those many signs help serve me as a reminder that God wanted me on that winding road, even though it was painful, full of loss. But as I look ahead at the hills and valleys, I know that he will take care of me, and he will supply what I need, maybe just when I need it, not when I ask but he will be faithful. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of John. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading selected verses from John chapter 7 in the New International Version. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is the eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My prayer is that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may truly be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am 
and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Wow, what a story, Kendra. Just so you all know, there's nothing false on me up here, so just... (laughs) Don't want any questions going on? Well, good morning. My name is Julie Steele, and I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, we are continuing in our uh, sermon series in the book of John, entitled uh, The Son of God. We're in John chapter 17, and Kendra read many of those verses for us. Um, And this is commonly known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, because this is a prayer that he prays for his disciples and for the coming church, which is us. Now, before we get into Jesus' prayer today, uh, I want to talk just a little bit about prayer in general. So this is my, I guess it's a great niece, Hannah, who lives in Arizona, Yes, she is a Seahawks fan, and as a little second grader, she takes her life in her hands going to school in Arizona, dressed like that. Well, my sister, who she lives with, Hannah's grandma, was sending Hannah off to school one day, and she said, Hannah, I just want you to know that every day you leave for school, I pray that God will give you a good day. And Hannah said to my sister, and sometimes it works. Don't you feel that way? Sometimes it works, sometimes maybe it doesn't. Well, I want to talk a little bit about, like I said, prayer in general, and talking about my own prayer life a bit. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I take the opportunity in prayer to tell God how he can solve a problem, and it doesn't happen. Crickets. Or... He solves it a different way that I didn't think was quite so helpful. Well, how, how does prayer work? The dictionary says that prayer is a solemn request for help or expression of thanks addressed to God or an object of worship. And if you Google what prayer is, which I did just for fun, you get all kinds of answers. Prayer is just simply talking and listening to God. It's a natural result of a relationship with God, just as my conversation with you would be a natural result of our relationship. Now, something that I've come to realize is that there are times when what I'm praying for isn't the real need. Sometimes what needs to happen is my view of the situation needs to change. I don't know if you can relate to that, An example might be, you need a job, and you've prayed about a job, but you still don't have a job. So that must mean that God doesn't answer prayer, right? Well, maybe the need is to trust God more and to be open to something different. Maybe that's the actual need, and the want is the job. Or how about I'm praying about a broken relationship, 
something that I'm going through, which a lot of you might be anticipating with Thanksgiving coming up this week, but that person just won't change. Maybe the need is for me to change. That pretty much usually sums up the story for me I've learned. Well, we're told in scripture that if we ask anything in Jesus' name, it's going to be given, so it must be true. But does that mean you always get what you want when you ask God for something in prayer? We make petitions to God, we let God know exactly where we stand and what needs to happen. However, if in our prayers we admit that God is greater and he has more ultimate knowledge of the situation and knows what's best for us, then we can pray instead, not my will, but yours be done. Just as Jesus did, we'll see in the next chapter next week. Now the key to answered prayer is praying according to the will of God, which would be our need. I want to let you know about some of the opportunities here at Evergreen for prayer. First of all, we have a ministry team leader of prayer. Did you know that? Susan, where are you? Raise your hand. Okay, so if you want to talk about ideas about prayer or you have needs or ideas, Susan would love to talk to you about that. But some things that we have here in place, we have a prayer chain and what that is it's a group of people who are uh, signed up in our database that get an email about a prayer request. And the way that works is you can either sign up to be on that prayer chain so that you can pray for those requests, or if you yourself have a request, you call Leanne in the church office during the week and you can either send her an email or chat with her and she'll get that out. If it's on a weekend, you can send it to me, and our email addresses are, are in your bulletin. That's the prayer chain. Then we have a prayer update, which I brought up here. Here it is. Out in the lobby area every Sunday, there is a little piece of paper out there with prayer requests. You can choose to be on this. You can take one of these home and lift these up during the week in prayer. We have a Thursday morning prayer group that meets here. We also have on Communion Sundays, you'll notice prayer available for you on either side of the sanctuary. So those are just some of the prayer opportunities that we have here at Evergreen that you might not know about. Prayer is powerful. Prayer can help us move from seeing a want to the need. It can help us pray differently. God always answers our prayers, sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no, which by the way is an answer. And sometimes it might be wait, but it's always for our good. Well, let's move into John 17 and see Jesus' prayer. This prayer of Jesus was said the evening of his arrest, after the supper in which he first instituted Holy Communion where he used the bread and the wine as symbols for his body and blood which would be broken and shed the next day on the cross. The beginning of chapter 17 starts with, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. If you knew you had limited time, maybe just a few hours, what would you pray about? Interesting thought. 
I thought about that a lot this week, and I, I boiled it down to one thing. I prayed that my family would know Jesus and desire his will above their own. Because if that's where a person is, if that's where I am, all the other things that we have to pray about are taken care of. And so I really thought about that, and that's something that I can start praying even now. So what did Jesus pray for? Well, he had this few hours left, and there was an urgency here. He began praying with an upward focus. He asked that God would be glorified. Then he prays with an outward focus as he prays for his disciples that they would be protected from the evil one as they go into the world to bring Jesus' mission to the world. Now, he asks for them to be protected in that situation. He does not ask for them to be taken out of that challenging situation. And sometimes, God doesn't want to change where we are. He wants to change us in it. And lastly, Jesus had an onward focus, and that's where we are here. He prays for unity for all believers. Now, why does he pray for unity? Because if the mission is to go forward, there has to be unity. And what's the mission? Well, in verse 21 and in verse 23, you see underlined here, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in 23, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see, the unity was for this mission. Now, the mission is back in verse 3 that we don't see here. Now, this is eternal life, that, you, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus says this is eternal life. If people know God through Jesus, they have eternal life. And we know that in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. This is why Jesus came. This is why he died. So he prayed for our unity because he knew that the one thing that would stop this mission this life or death mission literally was us. That's pretty sobering. The correlation between our unity and people knowing Christ is clear and direct. We individually and collectively are advertising for Jesus every day. People are judging him by what they see us do. Now, what is unity? Well, let's start by what it is not. It's not everybody agreeing on everything. If you have two people in a room, you have two different opinions. If you have 100 people in a room, you have 100 different opinions, right? Have you ever heard of death by committee? Too many opinions? Too many cooks in the kitchen? Too many opinions? An example for unity, for mission, is marriage. If you're married, your mission is to be one, not the same, but have the same goal. My husband and I are very different, and when Barry and I are not doing well relationally, 
it's usually a consequence of one of us not being on mission. Not naming names here. The need to be right or have our own way over prioritizing the relationship derails our mission of being one or being unified. Now, here's the thing about unity. It's not outside forces that have the power to fracture unity. It's all internal. Anyone who's been married for any length of time will testify that outside forces come your way every day that can break the relationship. But if you stay on mission, you can deal with them in a unified way. Kids, jobs, in-laws, all can fracture our unity. Now, I know for us, Barry's health issues have taken a toll on our relationship. Navigating all the changes has caused us both to question our ability to have a quality relationship like we used to. How can we stay united when we both feel isolated as we each handle our own loss of what has been? Many of you can relate to this. There have been times when I have thought, I didn't sign up for this. And he's thought, what's the point? I'm never going to get better. We have to be unified and keep coming back to the question, how are we going to stay on mission with this marriage? We have to be unified to nurture what's going to help the marriage so that the outside forces cannot destroy the relationship and actually the relationship can flourish. And think about parenting. You have to be unified or they will conquer and divide. Am I right? There are times when we were not in agreement with how to handle something with our kids, but we made a vow we would be unified in front of them. So they couldn't play one of us off the other. You can probably all relate to that one too. When Adam, our oldest, was about four or five, he asked Barry if he could do something or have something. I, I can't remember now. And Barry said, what did your mother say? And Adam said, she said no. Silly him. And Barry said, well, I agree with your mother. And little Adam said, don't agree, with his little veins popping out of his neck. It was really hard to take him seriously. Well, the two biggest disagreements that we did have with our kids were getting pocket knives and BB guns. I did not hide my disapproval on those. The mission of unity imploded that day at our house, and I was fine with that. Well, here are some other verses that talk about unity. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And Paul writing here, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, here, is, here are the verses from Acts chapter 2, and these are describing the uh, beginning of the church after Jesus ascends to heaven. This is what that community looked like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now I have to say, initially, this description, doesn't this remind you of some hippie commune, right? They're all hanging out together. Now, I'm not into constant togetherness, and I really want my own bathroom. So I'm not sure how I would have functioned in this community. However, this description of, the, of this early church is not merely a unity of thought among these early believers, but it's also a matter, clearly, of shared life. I think back to when our kids were young and we had the experience of shared life here in this church. We were always together during the week, having lunch, play dates, swapping kids, going to get our Christmas trees together. We, we really had a shared life and it was a really cool time. Um, I think back at that point, my husband was not a believer and yet that community is what really drew him in and he wanted to be a part of it. Now I want you to notice this last verse in particular here. They enjoyed the favor of all the people and they grew in numbers. Why? Not because they had great programs, but because they devoted themselves to sound teaching and being together. You need both. If you're simply hanging out together all the time, it's just a social club. You need to have sound teaching in the context of community to get a fuller view of who God is and what he says. Bible literacy is a real problem for us today in the Christian community. People do not know their Bibles. How do we know how to live if we don't know what God's word says and that we're doing this together in community? Psalm 119 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If we don't know what God says, how can we experience a transformational life? How can you know when you're going against what God's word says if you don't know it? Now, this perfect picture here, or this perfect, excuse me, picture of Jesus prayer is being answered in Acts chapter 2. Here's what I see. Belong, become, and engage. People were drawn to this community. They wanted to belong, and they, as they did, they devoted themselves to the teaching, and so they became, 
And then later on in a few chapters in Acts, you'll see that they engaged because everybody was serving in the community. This is what unity for mission will do. Their unity was compelling. Their love and care for each other drew people in so that others were then drawn to Christ. And that's the goal. Now we know that this early church faced much outside persecution. Paul himself rounded up Christians to throw in jail and have killed. But the church grew. Hmm. Interestingly enough, it's not the persecution that has hindered the church. It was the quarreling and division that threatened the mission as we read in Paul's letters. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. The seventh thing is the last one on this list, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So how did Christians and the church get to a place where people don't want to belong, let alone become, anymore? The church and Christianity are irrelevant and tolerated at best now. How did we get so far from enjoying the favor of all the people? Well, we can't keep blaming cultural shifts and outside forces. We love to blame Satan, but you know what? Satan only has as much power as we give him because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We give him too much credit. We have to have unity for the sake of the mission. We do not need to agree on all things, but we need to be comfortable agreeing to disagree. Now, I have no doubt that Jesus' disciples did not agree on a lot. They were arguing who was going to be first in the kingdom of God. Remember that? We will argue. We will not see eye to eye. We have different views, different opinions, different backgrounds. That's all good. And I keep hearing laments from people about, oh, the political and cultural climate has divided the church. Our differences have always been there. They've just been out the last few years. I see this present state that we are in as the church's opportunity to live out the unity that Christ prayed for in this prayer. Unity calls for more discussion and less division. That's how we handle conflict. We need to find a better way to have discussions, more listening and less talking. The book of James says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. My hope is that the church will be a place that people marvel at, at how we can disagree and yet be respectful, loving, and united. If the church can't do it, who can? We have the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus knew that unity would be the most important tool for the mission, and it would be the most difficult to attain. He understood that his saving work on the cross would not be believed or received if the world saw a fractured, unloving, and self-righteous community. The church needs to find a way to regain its place at the table, 
so that the world will lean into our message of eternal life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of my favorite theologians. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief. I don't know how many of you are familiar with his writings. He was a Lutheran pastor in Germany, and he opposed the Nazi regime, and he died because of it. He's a fascinating man, and I would encourage you to pick up one of his books. So we are the direct representation of Christ. Is that what others see? Do other people who see you question their unbelief because of what they see in you? The first service one owes to others in a community involves listening to them. Just as our love for God begins with listening to God's word, the beginning of love for others is learning to listen to them. God's love for us is shown by the fact that God not only gives God's word, but also lends us God's ear. We do God's work for our brothers and sisters when we learn to listen to them. So often Christians, especially preachers, think that their only service is always to have to offer something when they are together with other people. They forget that listening can be a greater service. Christians who can no longer listen to one another will soon no longer be listening to God either. Are we not able to hear God because we aren't listening to each other? Is the mission being lived out in the greater church today, do you think? What about our church? Would the people around us identify Evergreen as a compelling community where they want to belong and can become and engage? The good news is that unity is possible because Jesus prayed for it and he wouldn't have asked for something that wasn't possible. It's directly aligned with God's will for us and the world, and so Jesus knew that that prayer could be answered. But you know what? It's up to us now, just as it was up to the early church. Are we willing to set aside our own personal will and strive for unity for the sake of mission? Pray with me. Lord, we confess to you now the ways in which we have not listened to each other and have even stirred up conflict in this community. We want your prayer for us to be answered today so that your church can become what you always intended it to be and prayed for, a place to belong, a place to become and engage so that all could experience eternal life. Holy Spirit, show each of us how we can promote unity within our church family today. And we too ask, as Jesus did, that you would be glorified in and through us as we seek your will and not our own. In your name we pray, amen.